spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. This week on Viewpoints. Space is something that gives us the opportunity to go someplace larger, see something grander than we possibly can see on Earth. The billionaire space race. Then... Western women, they consider themselves mainstream American women who were just taking advantage of the opportunities that the West gave them. The real movers and shakers of the new frontier. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. I struggled with symptoms like frequent gas and stomach pain for years. I was bloated all the time with daily diarrhea. At first, I thought it was what I was eating. I kept thinking it was stomach issues. So I did my research and talked to my doctor, and we finally uncovered the truth. It, it was, was actually EPI. Exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or EPI, is a condition where your pancreas is unable to help break down your food. It can lead to symptoms like diarrhea, gas, bloating, stomach pain, unexplained weight loss, and oily stools. And EPI symptoms can be confused with those of other common digestive conditions, like irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's, and celiac disease. So getting to the right diagnosis meant being more open with my doctor about the severity of my symptoms and how often they were happening. But there's good news. EPI is manageable, so don't wait any longer. Use the symptom checker at identifyepi.com and schedule a visit or call with your doctor to ask, Could Could I I have have EPI? EPI? Sponsored by AbbVie. Since 1961, humans have chased the thrill of adventuring into the last frontier. Over the years, countries have spent hundreds of billions of dollars sending their astronauts into space, each time trying to push the envelope on a new breakthrough. Now, we've reached yet another milestone, private space travel. Billionaires Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos both successfully reached space last month and brought along a few lucky passengers. With this news, many people are asking, why now? Why would two men who have everything take the risk? My feeling is that billionaires or not, they are responding to the same sort of transcendent wonder we all apply to space. I mean, space is something that gives us the opportunity to go someplace larger, see something grander than we possibly can see on Earth. We have all always been a little bit drunk on space. That's Jeffrey Kluger, the editor-at-large at Time magazine and a journalist who's been covering space exploration for more than four decades. Although there's been some controversy around Branson and Bezos creating their own space companies in order to take a private flight, he understands their ambition. Billionaires are in a position to fly themselves to suborbital space and then fly others. I think that whatever else we may say about billionaires, they're not always lovable, they're not always cuddly, but whatever else we may say about them, 
I think they're responding to something very deep and primal that moves us all. So it's hard for me to be churlish about their work and their enterprises, and I just feel generally positive about what it is they're doing. One reason Kluger believes this new idea of space tourism is exciting is because it opens up the door to people who otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity. This includes professionals in the space industry, politicians, and scientists. As more rockets are built, more and more astronauts and civilians can reach out for the void of space. In the 60 years since Yuri Gagarin became the first human being in space, fewer than 600 people have ever traveled to space. So the idea that this number could explode exponentially if Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic begin carrying tourists regularly democratizes space, it opens up space. Some people, cynics, might argue it cheapens space. It makes it a less special thing. But air travel was once something for the elite. Traveling across oceans was once something for the elite. And then it became something for the masses. Who knows? One day the average Joe could hop on a rocket, travel to space, and be back on Earth in time for dinner. The many possibilities are exciting, but it's important to remember that it's still a risky endeavor. Traveling outside Earth's atmosphere is a vastly different environment than most are used to. Now, space travel will always be a little bit more difficult for anyone to undertake. The physics are still pretty punishing. You have to be able to tolerate three or four or more Gs. You have to be able, if you're going into orbit, to accelerate to 17,500 miles per hour. So you're certainly not going to be able to send anyone at all on a space flight in the same way you can send virtually anyone at all on an airline flight. But I think the opening up of space is, in the long run, a good thing, making this terra incognita that so few people have ever explored something that's available to the vast rest of us. Blasting upwards into space is an experience like no other. On top of the physical strains, there's also the risk of a major malfunction of the spacecraft. The field of private space travel brings into question the vetting process and safety checks for each flight. What's the real risk of something going wrong? Will there one day be a life insurance policy that covers space travel? Do I worry about accidents? Yes, I worry about accidents. Every time you fly in space, there's a risk of an accident. The more times these spacecraft take off, the more every single flight is an opportunity for an accident. It's impossible to say unless you're actually inside Blue Origin and inside Virgin Galactic if the vetting processes are as exhaustive as they are for NASA. But do I worry about accidents? Yes, I worry about accidents. I think if people are mindful of the risks, and there are risks associated with this, I think people are physically up to it and mentally and emotionally up to it and, again, are fully informed of what the dangers are and what the parameters of the mission are. I don't see anything wrong with it. Despite the calculated risks, Bezos and Branson took flight and seemed to enjoy the ride. They both technically reached space, but there are different definitions of what the boundary of space is. The most common definition is called the von Karman line which lies about 62 miles above the Earth's surface. 
Bezos reached this line while Branson's flight rocketed up 53 miles before descending back down. Kluger says the minimal difference in height doesn't change the end experience for passengers. Either way, you are traveling to a place that's effectively above the atmosphere, where the sky is black, where the earth below you recedes in a way that we never see it recede when we're in a simple airplane. You experience weightlessness, you experience that you have the opportunity for sightseeing. So in the long run, that 12-mile difference between 50 and 50 miles and 62 miles just isn't that big a difference at all. So, are you sold on space travel yet? Well, the main question is, do you have the funds? One ticket on Branson's Virgin Galactic flight will set you back $250,000. This includes the one-hour flight, training, and a spacesuit. There are only six seats available per flight, and 600 people have already booked a spot. Kluger says the prices are sky-high right now, but he predicts that one day, within our lifetime, heading into space will be more attainable. Ultimately, economies of scale, as more people fly these missions, as more spacecraft are built, the price will come down. It still will be unlikely ever to be the equivalent of a $200 seat line between New York and Baltimore, but the prices are likely to come down. The future of space tourism relies on the success of upcoming flights over the next few years. As demand soars, more spacecrafts will likely be built, propelling more civilians into space. I certainly think the prices will go down in our lifetimes, but again, whether they will go down to the level of ordinary airline prices is another question entirely, and that's very hard to say. The future of civilian space travel is an exciting field to follow. Who knows how the industry will evolve even within the next five or ten years. To learn more about this topic and our guest, Jeffrey Kluger, visit viewpointsradio.org. Kluger's first space novel, Holdout, is available for purchase online and in bookstores. For more behind the scenes, search Viewpoints Radio on Twitter and Facebook. This segment was written by Bridget Killian and Amira Zaveri. Our executive producer is Amira Zaveri. I'm Gary Price. Coming up. We travel back in time to the wild, wild west when Viewpoints returns. Cardiovascular or CV disease is the number one killer of adults in the U.S. And millions of people trying to reduce their risk of a heart attack or stroke may unknowingly be taking medications that are not proven, nor FDA approved to reduce cardiovascular risk. Let's hear from cardiologist Dr. John Osborne. Many people are unaware that after a failed outcome study, the FDA revoked the approval of phenofibrates when added to statins, as the risk outweighed the benefits to heart health. It's important to remember that statins, along with diet and exercise, can lower cardiovascular risk by about 25 to 35 percent. But persistent cardiovascular risk, which can lead to a life-threatening event, may remain. I would tell anyone still being prescribed phenofibrates, such as Tricor and Trilipics, with a statin to talk to their doctor about FDA-approved therapies for cardiovascular risk reduction. To learn more and get clear on the facts, visit itscleartomenow.com. Again, that's itscleartomenow.com. Hey, we get it. You don't want to be hearing a progressive commercial right now, so let us tell you something you do want to hear. You are powerful. You're a warrior who bathes in your enemy's tears. Then you step out of that refreshing tear bath and into a bathrobe that somehow looks good on you. Yeah. 
you can pull off a robe. There. Don't you feel better? You'll also feel better when you save money for driving safely with Snapshot from Progressive. Mmm, savings you can use to buy more robes. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Snapshot not available in California, North Carolina, or from all agents. For the ones who know that a little late is always too late. And that the clock doesn't stop just because you're missing a part. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry. And our KeepStock inventory management solutions help ensure you have the right stuff in the right place at exactly the right time. Visit Granger.com slash KeepStock to learn more. Granger for the ones who get it done. We've all heard of the classic American dream. If you work hard enough, you can achieve anything, no matter who you are. But this wasn't always the status quo. Sometimes we forget about the people of the past who fought to form this belief. Go back to the 19th century when travelers headed west on a grueling mission that promised anything but comfort. Today we have picket fences, minivans, and golden retrievers. Back then, the American dream was fueled by the Oregon Trail, wagon trains, and the promise of striking gold. Author Winifred Gallagher highlights the women of this time in her book, New Women in the Old West, From Settlers to Suffragists, An Untold American Story. Gallagher says gold and the possibility of a better life drove hundreds of thousands to relocate west almost two centuries ago. In the magic year of 1848, which was actually when the famous Seneca Falls Suffrage Conference was held, the gold rush began in California, and the U.S. annexed the huge Oregon Territory and also took what is now our Southwest as spoils in the Mexican-American War. So the people who were heading out west either wanted to strike it rich in the gold rush or they wanted to claim free land. And many of these travelers were families coming from the east or upper south regions of the country. While there were some African Americans and Asians in this group, the majority were white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant farmers or artisans. These men and women were used to hard manual labor and today would be considered middle class since they had enough money to migrate out west. Gallagher says that for women of this period, life was difficult, and there was some apprehension around what opportunities the rural West would hold. They really faced a series of childbirths and really backbreaking domestic labor. It was a hard life for most women. That's why so many women were interested in fleeing to the cities. By the same time Western migration was going on, America was urbanizing very rapidly, and life was much easier for women in the cities. They were able to get around. There was transportation and there were bookstores and there were newspapers and there were shopping was easier and life in general was a lot easier in urban areas. So on first glance, the women who went west appeared to be going backwards in time to a worse period for women. But in fact, they encountered some special advantages once they got to the west. Most women who did move to this region did so with their husbands. In the 19th and 20th centuries, it was common for teenage girls to be married off at the young age of 14 or 15. 
In much of the country, they had little independence or say in their day-to-day lives and marriages. Women's position in larger American society was awful. The women's place was only in the home. They were second-class citizens. They had very few legal rights or economic opportunities. For quote-unquote respectable women, marriage was the only career that was acceptable. And once you were married, a wife could not own property, divorce, have custody of her own children. Women were considered inferior to men in every way except virtue. They had a certain moral authority over matters of right and wrong, and that moral authority was really their only form of power. But as these women left bustling towns and cities and migrated west, new opportunities took shape in the open prairies they crossed. But how did they start anew in such an unfamiliar place in which some already called home? You can't really say the West was undeveloped because Native Americans had lived there and, of course, sometimes farmed and traveled and made use of the territory. So it wasn't like it was uninhabited, but the West was very sparsely populated. There were not many people, including Native Americans there. There were no amenities such as shops or churches or schools or anything of that sort that all had to be built from scratch. The lack of a functioning society offered some perks. Ladies of the West enjoyed more freedoms than their counterparts out east or in the south. Gallagher highlights that many stepped into leadership roles during this era and were vital in the construction of the first schools, churches, and charities. Women were also outnumbered by single working men. This unequal balance gave those who were there more leverage. One wife was shocked when she was making breakfast for her family in Gold Rush, California, when a miner passing by offered her $5 for a hot breakfast. That's $168 in today's money. And he noted that he would have paid $10 if she had asked. So women in this environment, single women, had their pick of suitors, and unhappy wives soon availed themselves of America's first divorce mills. California very rapidly became the divorce capital of the nation. Women also benefited from the West's simpler, more experimental settler society. Every pair of hands was needed to get all the work done. No one had time to worry about whether it was man's work or woman's work. And that kind of flexibility enabled women to become more equal by acting more like equals. So these hardworking women were not yet considered equal to men, but they certainly narrowed that gap and they won men's respect as a force to be reckoned with. Gallagher says that in heavy mining areas, ladies were such a rarity that towns created new laws that benefited women. One of my women arrived in Sacramento. There were 6,000 men, and she was one of three women. So the Western legislatures wanted to attract more white women. That was one of the reasons why they went for suffrage much earlier. But before suffrage, they tried to lure women with increased property rights and the ability to sue in court and the ability to divorce. They weren't that invested in an unhappy couple staying together for moral reasons. And in an environment where there were so many more men than women, if a woman wasn't happy with a husband who abused her or beat her and her children, she could just leave and she was not considered a pariah the way a divorcee might be back east. She would very rapidly have her pick of another husband. In addition to greater freedoms in relationships, women also had more opportunities to get an education from a co-ed school and pursue a career. 
One remarkable career opportunity was provided by the government. In 1862, Congress passed the Morrill Land Grant Act, which created about 100 tuition-free public colleges throughout America, but 67 of them, most of them, were in the West. And in the West, most of these schools were co-educational, which was a very radical advance at the time. Indeed, these Western land-grant co-ed schools were some of the first co-educational colleges in the world. So this means that at a time when Eastern girls were going to Vassar and Smith and Wellesley, single-sex schools, the Western women were being educated with men and exchanging views with men and male students, male teachers. Also, now they had a career alternative to marriage. So many graduates became teachers. The West was desperate for teachers. But many others, one of my favorites is Bethenia Owens Adair, who graduated from medical school at the age of 40. She was one of about 15% of Western women who entered traditionally male professions, such as medicine and law, and that's compared to the national rate of 8%. So that's almost twice as many Western women became professionals as women did back East. Yet it's important to remember that many women of this era were also homemakers who carried out domestic responsibilities. Gallagher says that this simple way of life contributed to the romanticized stories we tell today. So this made the kind of idealized, the virtuous homemaker in her little cabin with her children and her honest husband out plowing the unplowed ground. So there was a certain amount of romanticism there. But I think it's also important to realize that Western women, the women that I write about who were the kind of movers and shakers, they did not see themselves as radicals or weirdos or anything like that. They considered themselves mainstream American women who were just taking advantage of the opportunities that the West gave them. They were just doing the work that needed to be done in a very straightforward manner. Western women of color also pushed for new freedoms as well. Gallagher tells the story of Elizabeth Ensley, an educated African-American woman whose parents were former slaves. She married a college-educated black man. They both taught at Howard University's normal school. That's a school that teaches teachers how to be teachers. And then they migrated to Colorado, which, like California, was known to be a kind of more liberal-minded state that attracted a number of African-American settlers. And once she got to Colorado, she was a passionate suffragist, and she was, of course, much better educated than most women of any race at the time. Ensley went on to become the founder and secretary of the Everybody's Equal Suffrage League during a time when the suffrage movement itself was divided. This was an integrated suffrage organization at a time when, even within the suffrage movement, a lot of the groups were segregated. So she really made an outstanding difference. She was a political voice in Colorado by the turn of the century. The strong females of the new frontier banded together to push for more rights within their careers, relationships, and as citizens of the United States. In fact, this population was the first to have the right to vote. They casted ballots years before it was legal for women across the country to vote. Learn more about the stories of these courageous ladies in Gallagher's book, New Women in the Old West, From Settlers to Suffragists, An Untold American Story, available online and in bookstores. You can also find archives of past shows and guests at viewpointsradio.org. 
Our writer this week is Scarlett O'Hara. Our executive producer is Amira Zaveri. Studio production by Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson. Viewpoints returns in just a moment. The number of people with dementia worldwide will nearly triple by the year 2050 to more than 150 million. The new data presented at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference 2021 shows fastest dementia growth in Africa and the Middle East. Dr. Maria Carrillo is chief science officer at the Alzheimer's Association. Positive trends in education levels are helping to dampen the increase in dementia, but total numbers are still going up because of the aging of the population, as well as the influence of more obesity, diabetes, and sedentary lifestyles that are all risk factors for dementia. Another study reported at the conference finds wide differences in the Alzheimer's mortality burden in the United States. In the rural South, the Alzheimer's death rate is three times higher than the mid-Atlantic region. Researchers say this could be the result of health disparities, including differing access to primary care and other health services. Find out more at ALZ.org. Welcome to Culture Crash, where we examine what's new and old in entertainment. Between its catalog of movies and shows, Netflix already has no shortage of content for subscribers to watch. But in fact, the streamer has even more than many realize, as those of us willing to check out foreign language properties have discovered. Roma, one of the streamer's marquee movie titles, is a Spanish and mixed-tech language film that I absolutely loved, and Dark is a German-language show that is one of my all-time favorites. But recently, I started another foreign-language Netflix title, and I can't stop binge-watching it. Elite is a Spanish-language teen drama with a crime twist. It's sort of an edgier, more adult version of Veronica Mars, set in Spain. The show tells the story of a group of rich kids going to an elite private school who have their lives rocked when a group of poorer scholarship kids come to campus. What follows is a lot of soapy drama, some very risque content, and then a murder. I already compared the show to Veronica Mars, but if you're unfamiliar with that, then think of it as a hard R version of the OC, Gossip Girl, or One Tree Hill mixed with a heaping spoonful of The Killing, or Broadchurch. I started the show one day on a whim, and it has been full steam ahead for me ever since. In just a couple weeks, I've torn through the first two seasons, and I'm eagerly anticipating the next two which are all queued up and waiting for me on the service. Elite seasons one through four are available to stream on Netflix. I'm Evan Rowe. I'm looking forward to a play date with my granddaughter. Nana! (laughs) I can't wait to get together with my friends for a backyard barbecue. If you're 65 or older, you're starting to get back to doing things you love. Did you know even healthy adults 65 and older are at increased risk for pneumococcal pneumonia? It's a potentially serious bacterial lung disease that can disrupt your life for weeks. Help protect yourself with the Prevnar 13 pneumococcal 13-valent conjugate vaccine, diphtheria CRM197 protein. Prevnar 13 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 13 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 13 does not protect against all strains of the disease. Ask your doctor or pharmacist today about Prevnar 13. Learn more at Prevnar13.com. 
Don't get Prevnar 13 if you have had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with a weakened immune system may have a lower response to the vaccine. The most commonly reported side effect was pain at the injection site. For additional common side effects and full prescribing information, please call 1-866-694-9300 or visit Prevnar13.com. That's Viewpoints for this week. Viewpoints is a production of MediaTrax Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming shows. And find a library of past programs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and more information about our guests at viewpointsradio.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Viewpoints. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com, code SUPER24.